0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to Cover Story, a podcast about long-form journalism by New Books Network. My name is Aga Pupenda and I'm your host. And there is no better person to start this journey with than journalist Nicholas Lemon, who has been in the industry for almost 50 years, starting at age 17, and today we will be talking about the piece he wrote in February of last year for the New York Review titled "Can Journalism Be Saved?" in which he claims uh, a lot of things, but uh, he he say he says that, yes, journalism can be saved, and maybe probably by government and by regulations. Uh, I wanted to check what still holds, and uh, but before we do that, uh, Professor Lemon, can you tell us about yourself?
1: Well, sure. Um, first of all, nice to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm a professor at Columbia Journalism School in New York City. I'm former dean of the school uh, from 20, 2003 to 2013. I'm a staff writer for The New Yorker. Um, and actively working as a journalist uh, writing long magazine articles and books um, so that's the quick version of me
0: uh, yes uh, and you've been a staff writer and an editor uh, you know uh, working with many famous American magazines but it seems that uh, um, It sounds that you were in love with journalism from the very beginning, right? Because you started very early on as a teenager and then you became a president uh, of Harvard Daily, the Harvard Crimson. Why? Where this love of journalism is coming from?
1: I don't really know. um, (laughs) To ask my uh, psychotherapist or something like that, I I didn't know any journalists when I was growing up. um, And I grew up in Louisiana uh, And I just became intensely, intensely interested in journalism, particularly magazine journalism. Around age, you know, 14 or 15, I started uh, reading magazines voraciously and getting excited about it and thinking that's what I want to do with my life. Um, I guess uh, if I had to, to speculate, you know, it was a very different time in a very different place. Um, So in those days where I was, at least instead of having the so-called liberal media, we had the conservative media and there was just, you know, reading our local uh, press was like reading, you know, people's daily or something. It was an official version of reality. And I, I, I felt kind of, dead and then i would read other things locally it would be what we would call underground newspapers um that would print like what was actually going on and it was very exciting to think that a journalist could you know s- tell you what was happening in the world honestly um and and you know i i found that to be exciting um i guess that's the best i can do with mm-hmm.
0: it Was there anyone in particular that excited you as a long piece magazine writer, or maybe you remember some pieces that uh, that blew your mind? I know it's probably an awful question to ask.
1: (laughs) Well, so these were the days of uh, so-called new journalism. So um, uh, you know, it was the heyday of Tom Wolfe as a magazine writer and. Uh, Gay Talese, you know, David Halberstam, names like that. So I I was um particularly eager reader of Harper's Magazine, which at the time was edited by somebody from Mississippi. And um, so I could sort of identify and did a lot of work on the South where I was living um, and published a lot of the writers I just named. Another magazine I read a lot was Esquire, another was Rolling Stone. Those were all doing, you know, national magazines doing things I thought were very exciting. Um, So those, those, Mm -hmm. those be kind of at the top of the list.
0: Okay. um, I will be jumping a bit from subject to subject. So uh, I know that the pandemic was uh, writing friendly, meaning many writers uh, reported that they were able to write more, maybe finish a book. Uh, do you think that it was good for reading? And do you think it was good for reading long-form journalism? What's your experience with it as well?
1: Well, uh, uh, first on writing, the obvious challenge of of uh, long-form journalism during a pandemic is um, you know, I've spent my whole life interviewing people. That's that's our primary research technique in long-form journalism. And, you know, vast s- stretches of my life, every week I'd be getting on a plane and going somewhere to do a story somewhere. Um, so it took, for me, a lot of getting used to the idea that I couldn't travel in the way that I'm used to doing, and I had to do interviews on zoom uh or on the phone which really constrains the way you work um as far as reading goes you know i had a lot of time to read um and but you know a lot of the long-form journalism i was reading was also obviously reported from telephone or zoom and not on site so it 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 you know doesn't ordinarily have the immediacy that on-site reporting has.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you noticed more a long-form readership in general, or do, do people talk about it? I just wonder what this pandemic and a bit more time that we have uh, in our hands, maybe, uh, does it translate into, you know, more reading?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it certainly does for me. Um, I hear from friends in the book business that that you know business is good um and i hear that i mean i don't have the numbers in front of me but that it it seems like people are reading more or have been reading more during the pandemic now what does that mean for after the pandemic ends i don't know but um based on kind of anecdotal evidence uh i'd say it's been good for reading Mm
0: mm-hmm So how this particular piece that we are talking about, Can Journalism Be Safe, came together? I I wonder, um, did the uh, uh, publication came first and requested uh, something like that? Or or did you have a piece already in mind and you were looking for publication? I know that the uh, subject of journalism interests you for many, many years. Um, Yeah,
1: It's a little of both, really, as, you know, things I write usually are. This is a pretty collaborative field. Um, I I guess, you know, when I was the dean of Columbia Journalism School for 10 years, on the one hand, um, you know, by virtue of having that job, you get to see a lot of stuff. That you wouldn't have to see as you wouldn't be able to see or wouldn't see ordinarily as a working journalist you're part of you know a, a larger conversation about the how the field is is going um, so that was very striking to me and the i had a lot of thoughts about that but the main one was that the um, economic support system for repertorial journalism was evaporating very rapidly. That was what I thought was the main thing I was seeing over those 10 years. And I didn't think the the conversation about journalism fully took account of that. So I felt that I should participate in that conversation. When I was dean, there's a little bit of a constraint on how candid you can be, Um, that is, I felt I was able to say, you know, there are real challenges to the way that w- reporting gets paid for, but I, 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 I felt like I had to be a little more optimistic than I actually was. Um, so some of this was, was kind of stored up from the time I was dean and I was thinking about all these things, but I felt I had to be a little more politic than I was in that piece. So, you know, New York Review assigned me a book to review, and then we kind of went back and forth, and a whole bunch of other books were coming out, and they got added to the pile. Um, But for me, it was basically a way to sort of do a gigantic debrief on what I thought I was seeing during the time I was dean of the journalism school.
0: Yeah. So you read a lot about how internet affected journalism, but I was wondering how internet affected uh, long-form journalism in particular. And I was wondering uh, how iPhone uh, killed uh, just magazine and paper (laughs) flipping, you know? Um, And also, I don't know, is magazine reading a leisure that, that we just do not have anymore?
1: Well, you know... I I think the more, well, there's sort of two parts of this. So uh, one part is about readers and people's reading habits. And the other part is about the economic support system. You know, it's tempting to think, well, those are the same issue. Like if you're in the movie business, you're thinking about, are, are, do people still want to come to a theater and pay and buy a ticket and watch a movie, right? But but I actually think they're two different issues. So I want to discuss them somewhat separately. Um, and the reason for that is that the support, the real support system for the kind of journalism we've talked about on the whole has been advertising. Um, so it's really about the economics of advertising, not about readers buying magazines and spending time with magazines. Having said that, you know, I think we're seeing a kind of mixed result here. And again, I don't have all the statistics you'd want to have in front of me. Um, a lot of the book business, which is based on long form reading of fiction and nonfiction is said to be, and seems to be pretty healthy, um, so that would indicate that, that people are reading things. Um, physical magazines are diminishing, um, and most magazines, almost all magazines are read primarily online now. Uh, that gets the question of, and you know, sometimes on, on personal computers and, and laptops, sometimes on handheld mobile devices. You clearly don't want to read something long on a handheld device. Um, I will often read long things on a on my, you know, MacBook. Um, I don't know if other people do. So, I it's hard for me to answer the question of whether the internet per se has shortened attention spans. There's been a lot of attention paid to that, but on the business part. And this applies to both newspapers and magazines. Um, You know, advertising dollars have massively left uh, magazines and newspapers and gone to uh, Internet platforms and, you know, especially Google and Facebook. Um, And and that's what really has caused the distress in, in journalism. Uh, more so than people's reading habits.
0: Right, of course. And right now we have uh, new formulas that you um, uh, that you also mentioned in journalism, such as, uh, for example, a rich owner or a non-profit formula. Um, and I was wondering, uh, we've been observing, you've been observing, I'm sure, those two for a few years now. And of course, this is just the beginning of the era, but so far which of these two formulas you think work better
1: the two formulas being what
0: oh i'm sorry two formulas for journalism um newsroom as non-profit uh, versus newsroom uh purchased uh, uh, by a a rich owner and of course that the same would apply to magazines and uh...
1: yeah well it's tough to answer well okay so first of all they're not as different as they may sound because if you're a nonprofit, you then have to get rich people to give you money or, or, or you have to get somebody to give you money to pay the bills. So in one model, I've spent, for better or for worse, a lot of my life working for these sort of wealthy patron-owned publications. Um, so you know, the primary difference is that in that model, There's one person who owns the publication, calls the shots and pays all the bills. Um, What can go wrong? What can go wrong is one, you aren't able to find that kind of person for your publication. Uh, Two, you are able to find that kind of person, but they uh, have very, very strong opinions and impose a lot of onerous editorial requirements. And number three, uh, after a period of time, they lose interest in supporting the publication and leave. And I've seen all three of those happen. In a nonprofit model, uh, you know, you're more in control of the publication um, because it, is, it doesn't have an owner. Um, but you have to spend a lot more of your time fundraising because there isn't one person paying the bills. You've got to raise money to get the bills paid. And that takes a lot of time and emotional energy. And I've been very involved with that too over the years in various places. And, you know, the donors also may leave you or uh, be difficult to deal with or uh, try to impose editorial requirements. So neither, I mean, all forms of, support for journalism or imperfect and these are imperfect too
0: okay so let's talk about the one that you find uh, uh the least imperfect which would be a possible more role of the government and more regulations and creating something like a, uh um you know public media uh you mentioned i'm not sure where but you mentioned bbc model as well Uh, And my question was, don't you think, though, that BBC has a very particular, I would say, even political flavor that, you know, uh, that uh, uh, I'm not sure if uh, we can eliminate when we have uh, government support media. Media, what would you say to that?
1: Well, so there's a difference between, I I mean, I I don't, first of all, like all other models, this model is imperfect too. Um, But I guess, I I think it's being underexplored in the conversation now. Um, And, you know, there's a really big difference between state media and public media. And at least, you know, here in the US, a lot of my fellow journalists assume that if you have public funding of media, it immediately becomes state controlled media. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of research and truth-seeking activity that government pays for in the United States implicitly and explicitly. And uh, sometimes it works amazingly well and sometimes it doesn't. Um, But when it works well, one of the ways in which it works is that there are a lot of um, barriers between the government and the recipient of the funds. A really obvious example that, you know, began, I began thinking about when I came to work at a university is government funding for scientific research, um, Columbia gets, you know, something like a billion dollars a year in federal government grants to do scientific research. And again, it's not perfect, but what's surprising about it is how, uh, successful it is, um, you know, there's all sorts of people in the government who don't want climate change studied and don't want evolution studied and so on, but there's still massive amounts of government funding that goes into these things. Um, the, the, the COVID vaccines that are rolling out successfully now would never have been developed without government research funding. So, you know, you can look at that as one of the models and say, well, How do these folks get the independence they need to pursue the truth when somewhere in their funding source are people who want to suppress the truth? And then there are structures that you can use to to answer that question. So, you know, the BBC is, to the extent that it has a, I mean, it's funded, as you know, by a license fee, Mm -hmm. so it doesn't have to come before parliament or the prime minister and specifically ask for funding for specific initiatives. Um, It's fairly insulated. And, you know, the political, I mean, I'd be curious what you think its political bias is. Um, You know, it might be that it's more the sort of ambient bias of working journalists than a special bias that comes from the fact that it's government funded.
0: Mm-hmm. You also mentioned at some point in this piece, local boards as possibly, uh, you know. Um,
1: right. Yeah. So, so yeah. you know, in, in in the scientific grants that I was talking about, they tend to flow through uh, peer review systems. You know, the, the, you, you apply to an agency for a grant and then they sort of impanel a jury that decides whether you get the grant. So I think some system like that could probably work in journalism, and what I have been uh, advocating for for years is, since the the main you know lack of journalism is in local reporting, that you'd create something called the Fund for Local Journalism. It would be distributed at the state level, not centrally out of Washington, and each state would have some amount of funds and an appointed board that serves a fixed term that would hear and consider applications for funding. Um, And so that creates, uh, it targets to the need, and it creates some shield against direct political interference.
0: Okay. Sounds good to me. (laughs) Uh, Switching back a little bit uh, to long-form journalism and long-form pieces, how do we know when we have uh, a you know a magazine piece uh, in hand, or when we have a book? I'm talking from the writer's perspective.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny you should ask. I mean, you uh, I think you know, but you may not know that over the last five years, um, I've started and now run a nonprofit, new nonprofit news organization. Which is a book publisher. It's called Columbia Global Reports.
0: All right, right, yes. Um,
1: it's a nonprofit here at Columbia, and we uh, we've published, I guess, thirty books so far, and they're they're kind of, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, what we've gotten into. We're in the sort of shadow zone between magazine writing and book writing. I'd say our books are at the shortest. 25,000 words, which I guess is longer than a magazine would publish. And at longest, about 50,000 words, there are sort of small format books. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so I, I'm attracted to this kind of zone that's between what a magazine would publish and what a book publisher would publish. And we've, we've had fun doing it. And, and the books have, you know, some of them have sold quite well and we've gotten a lot of attention. Um, and because it's a nonprofit, I'm out fundraising all the time for this venture.
0: What about books that should have been magazine pieces only and are books now?
1: Uh, well, I, I think, you know, a typical <laughs> magazine story I think of as being, you know, and this is maybe longer than they actually are, 5,000 words. Um and, you know, you can't publish a 5,000-word book. So that that the kind of piece you're talking about, if it's published as a book, it's going to be very padded and and is going to feel like it should have been shorter. Because book publishers really are only interested in 50,000 words and up and usually 100,000 words and up for nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So it's a different format with a different kind of architecture.
0: Okay. Um, What can ruin a a piece, Uh, again, from a perspective of a writer? uh, You wrote so many of them. What are the difficulties that you typically run into or a a long-form journalist runs into?
1: (laughs) There's a (laughs) lot. Um, I mean, the, the first one would be if the subject that you want to write about, you can't get any access to information about that subject. For example, um, you know, the, the, you're writing a profile of somebody and the person won't talk to you. Um, so that's, that's a barrier. It's, you can get around it. There's a famous old piece by Gay Talese that's often taught in journalism schools called uh, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. And you know, it's a profile of the singer Frank Sinatra, but it's you know Frank Sinatra wouldn't talk to Gay Talese, so it's how to do a profile when the profile subject won't talk to you. But you know, access to fresh new information is is the lifeblood of long form journalism, and so that that would be the first barrier. And then you know, um, it's it's figuring out how to make the material engaging in a narrative sense, um, which can be challenging if the topic you're dealing with doesn't lend itself to narrative naturally, but is important and you want to bring it to people's attention. So so that can be a challenge. And then another challenge can be um, uh, kind of, The danger of being misleading by presenting, you know, technically true and compelling stories that are at odds with the truth of the situation. Yeah. Example would be, you know, that's in the news now is people are doing stories about, here's a story about Agatha who was vaccinated against COVID and then got sick afterward and it was horrible, and she went to the hospital, and she's still suffering. So that may be actually true, um, but it's wildly unrepresentative and and sort of encourages people not to get vaccinated, which is the wrong advice to give them. So, you know, that can be a problem. A famous uh, failure in journalism, long-form journalism, which is somewhat related to that, is the story that Rolling Stone retracted about um, a campus a sexual assault mm-hmm. in the of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And in that case, you know, the reporter and the magazine seemed to be so sure that they knew what they were going to find, that um, they were, were kind of... Um, they did not have the proper skepticism. Uh, and and they, they, they sort of went out into the world saying we want a story that says X, Y, Z, and can somebody provide that to us? And then X, Y, Z in this instance turned out to be untrue or, you know, not verifiable. Uh, so the answer, you know, that, that's a pitfall of don't be so, you have to be prepared to learn new things when you report a story and you shouldn't um, assume you know exactly what the story is before you start.
0: Yeah. Uh, Do you have pieces that you were not able to finish? For example, you have something for years and you know that you want to write it uh, and uh, for some reason it's not happening? Not
1: that much. Um, uh, Sometimes I'll have a story that, you know, sometimes there'll be a story. I've been pretty lucky in that regard, I'd say. Sometimes there'll be a story where um, you know, you need to be able to have access to something and you just can't get access to it, as I was saying before. Sometimes I'll have a sort of half-formed thought in my head that I'm interested in a broad topic, but I can't think of how to turn it into a story by by finding specific people to write about and places to go. Um but, you know, in general, my view is that this kind of writing is not an art, it's a craft. And, um, y- you know, you're, you're, you work with what you have and you get an assignment, and you do it the best, the best that you can. I'm, I'm not that into saying, you know, I'm having writer's block or that kind of thing, the way that novelists do sometimes.
0: What about editing? Can an editor ruin a piece?
1: yes definitely um editors are really really important this is a very the way i see it at least what i do is very collaborative i think it's incredibly important to find good editors and i've been luck unlucky sometimes but lucky most of the time in in being able to find wonderful editors to work with but it's really important for a writer to try to find that fit um there's a movie that almost nobody I know has seen, but I'll just, front page. Pardon?
0: Front page.
1: No. Well, that, that's a great movie, but (laughs) per what you're asking about, um, there's a, a fairly obscure Mike Lee movie about Gilbert and Sullivan called, uh, topsy turvy. It's about the making of their operetta, the Mikado. Um, And I thought that was about as good as anything I've ever seen at capturing. It's not about journalism, but about capturing how, you know, the creative process works in in a group setting where there's a group of people trying to make a cultural artifact that lies somewhere between art and craft and has to attract an audience. But they also have, you know, artistic ambitions for it. And there's also a, a lot of different players who who's lay hands on it. So it's not just a pure production of one person. And that really captures a lot of what long-form journalism is like, at least for me, that isn't so visible to a reader. Yeah. Like when I write a long piece for The New Yorker, a lot of people have their hands on it. Editors, fact-checkers, copy editors, and so on. And, and they all end up improving it, and, and it's just very collaborative.
0: What do you do when you know that something was changed and it's really not an improvement because it changes your original intention so much that, you know, it doesn't represent you anymore?
1: Well, in that case, I mean, at least at The New Yorker, that doesn't happen because you can say, I just, you know, this, this, you can say what you just said and they want, they'll honor your wishes. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if you say I'm I'm sorry, but I'm just have a personal philosophy that no one can change a word of what I've written, <laughs> it's not it's not in your self interest, and it won't be accepted by the magazine.
0: Sure thing. Um, in your piece, you of course uh, write about uh, big tech, uh, which brought a lot of disruption to journalism. Um, and as we said, a year passed since you wrote this piece, and uh, throughout this year, big tech was, uh, you know, under some monitoring. You know, there is a ongoing discussion on uh, uh, future regulation, stuff like that. I want, I wondered if you are hopeful, especially that you once famo- famously claimed that journalism are addicted to hope. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah right uh well, I am hopeful i mean i I guess um at least for my generation of journalists uh we were kind of brought up to think at least for what we do, all government regulation is is a bad thing, so you know, broadcast journalism used to be pretty heavily regulated, and it was deregulated in the nineteen eighties and And journalists pretty much cheered that, because you know, like any industry, we want government out of our lives. Um, we tend to think we're a special case, but, you know, leaving that aside. We're finally, the the society as a whole is having a serious conversation now about regulating various aspects of the internet to correct excesses. And like any, Conversation. It can go awry. It's going to be messy. Um, it, you know, things could turn out badly, but I do think it's a conversation we need to have. And I hope it's a conversation that journalists will actively participate in instead of saying, oh, you know, we refuse to talk about government regulation of anything that involves us. So it's going to happen, and we journalists should be part of the conversation right now.
0: Sounds good. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, things that you're doing right now. Before I do that, I wanted to ask you about New Orleans uh, that you're Uh from. Uh, Maybe that makes you such a wonderful cook. (laughs) Uh Um, And uh, uh, I wanted to know if you think you once said that uh, uh, you once chose Chicago uh, for uh, uh, for a kind of a scene of your uh, most recent book, uh, *Transactional Man*. Uh, and I uh, wanted to know what would be the book uh, about New Orleans uh, if you were writing um, a story of uh, you know last few decades or last century. Uh of America uh, that would be casted uh, you know, and set in New Orleans, what kind of story that would be?
1: Well, it would be um, <laughs> uh, I'm actually just starting work on a new book that is about New Orleans. Oh so it's 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 a kind of slightly different project from what you described. Um, I, I'm uh, <laughs> as with journalism, and I do it out of love. As with journalism, I tend to accentuate the negative about New Orleans, um, and so I'm not all that happy with my hometown and how it's doing. And I think that people get, people fall in love with it when they visit for various reasons, and they don't see that this is uh, one of a handful of the most troubled cities in the country with very, very high crime rate very high poverty, poor health care, poor education, poor environmental record, et cetera. Um, so, I, I, you know, I hate to say it, but I think that would be a lot of the story of New Orleans over recent decades is, is um, its inability to overcome these problems um, which have very deep roots, uh, you know, specific, where that all came into public view was with Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And, um, but I think there's a kind of an been a narrative that, well, that's over now and everything's okay now, but it's not okay now.
0: What about journalism in New Orleans?
1: Well, again, <laughs> I'm not as happy about it as I'd like to be. So when I was a kid, uh, we had two papers, um, which were the Times-Picayune in the morning and the States item in the afternoon. They were both owned by the Newhouse family, uh, which also owns the New Yorker and a bunch of other papers. And for peculiar reasons, when I was a kid, the Times-Picayune was bad and the States item was good. Hmm. Um, Then the papers merged into one paper and the basically the the state's item people took over the Times-Picayune and it became a really excellent paper. So, you know, during the 70s, 80s, 90s, the Times-Picayune became much, much, much better and won Pulitzer Prizes and and so on. It was really a wonderful thing. Uh, But then, you know, it, like many city papers, began to suffer from uh, the the internet and its economic effects. So where we are now is, um, there's a one of the wealthy owners you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, a man uh, named Mr. Georges in Baton Rouge, first bought the Baton Rouge paper called the Baton Rouge Advocate. Then as the Times-Picayune started sort of flailing Uh, he started a competitor in New Orleans called the New Orleans Advocate. So you had this odd situation for a while there where one of the poorest cities in the United States was one of the only cities with two daily newspapers, the Times-Picayune and the Advocate. (laughs) But then a few years ago, the new houses sort of gave up and sold the Times-Picayune to uh, George's, excuse me, the owner of the Advocate. So now, New Orleans only has one paper again, you know, called, it's hard to tell from looking at it, whether it's the advocate or the Times-Picayune, but anyway, it's basically the advocate. Um, and it's pretty good. It's not as good as the Times-Picayune in it's 1990s heyday, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's better than a lot of big city papers. So they should get credit for that. But there was, and, and then, you know, in my younger days, there was a, pretty robust alternative press in New Orleans. And a lot of that has gone out of business uh, by now. So I'd, I'd give New Orleans journalistically about a, a B right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you still consider it home? And is there any chance you go back and start a renaissance of journalism in New Orleans?
1: I don't think I'm going to move back to New Orleans, <laughs> but I do consider it home. And uh I've just finished being vaccinated, so I have a trip planned there for the first time in over a year, in a couple weeks, and I'm looking forward to that.
0: Sounds amazing. Um, So uh, does the new book have a title already or something uh, along those lines?
1: What it is, it's, um, and again, I'm just in the early stages. Um, My uh, family has been living in the New Orleans area since 1836. Wow. Um, And I have a um, now deceased uh, cousin who uh, I guess he's maybe the only person in the family before me. We have a big family. I think I have like 600 relatives or something like that. Um, But I think he was the only one before me who was an academic. He was a professor at Tulane. So he backed. You know, more than 50 years ago, went on a program of gathering up all the old family papers he could find and depositing them in the library at Tulane University. Um, so there's this big collection of family papers at Tulane, uh, which we've recently added to with some more recent material. And so the, the book I'm going to do is a kind of family history or memoir. You know, it, it it it'll be a lot about Louisiana, but through the lens of my family uh, and this, the, you know, the the material that's in these papers.
0: Wow, sounds incredible. Um, well, thank you so so much. Thank you for being first guest uh, at our new podcast cover story um thank you for your time thank you for a a wonderful piece and thank you for being hopeful when it comes to journalism okay
1: well thank you and good luck with the podcast